Welcome to Enacting the Kingdom, a podcast about liturgical worship. My name is Father Yuri Gladio, and I'm an Orthodox Christian priest with a lifelong desire to keep learning. I'm joined by my teacher and friend, Father Jeffrey Reddy. Father Jeffrey holds a doctorate in liturgical theology and is the co-director of the Orthodox School of Theology at the University of Toronto. Well, in today's episode, we're going to be going over the biblical context of the next section of Vespers, which is called the Cathisma. Is it right to call the section of the service Cathisma? Or is that referencing something else? No, that 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 is, in, in fact, what um, the, the section we call. There's more than one of those throughout the Liturgy of the Hours. It, you know, we'll talk a little bit about what, what that entails. So, Cathisma is the singular, Cathismata, the plural. So, um, I think we'll probably talk in a moment about what that actually means. <laughs> yeah, I think. So, in today's episode, uh, for the average churchgoer, the average Orthodox churchgoer, if you go to Vespers, it's usually on Saturday night before a Sunday morning divine liturgy, and you would hear the people, the, the congregation or the choir or the chanters sing, blessed is the man, right? Blessed, And sometimes that section of the service or that piece of music is just entitled by those first words, blessed is the man. You might hear somebody say, oh, are we doing blessed is the man today? And, and, and that section of the service is the cathisma. Um, so, yeah, we're going to kind of like work towards getting to what the heck we're singing when we sing Blessed is the Man. That's right, because in many of the settings, musically, it's not even necessarily recognizable as the psalms from which it was taken. So we'll talk about how you move from something called Cathisma or Cathismata to a hymn uh, that is sung at that particular point in Saturday evening Vespers. In other words, the eve of the Lord's Day, as well as on the eve of many feasts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so we need to start right there. Cathisma. What does that mean? It literally means to sit. So a sitting um, session. Uh, and in, in fact, there, there are hymns that are composed in and around the psalms that are called the sitting psalms or the section of, of the service called the sitting psalms. And those often get translated as uh, sessional hymns. And a sessional just literally means, again, from the Latin to sit down, right? So if you're in session uh, in a meeting or a conference or whatever, it's you're, you're meant to be sitting for that. So it's a, it's a part of the service where you're supposed to sit down. And that right off the bat should kind of indicate a few different things that are maybe different from um, other other modes or aspects or episodes during the liturgical services. Yeah, so in this episode, we're going to be going over the the biblical foundation of the service, and the cathismas or the sitting psalms are right out of the scriptures. So when we did the series on the Litany of Peace or the Great Litany, we saw that these were petitions written that were clearly kind of inspired by scriptural writings, that there weren't necessarily direct quotes, but you could easily identify various sections of the Bible that the petitions were drawing inspiration from. But 
the Cathismas, like the Cathisma section of Vespers is different in that we are literally just reading sections of the Bible verbatim. That's right. And it's straight from the Psalter in, in all cases. Uh, when we get to Matins or Orthros eventually, we'll talk about the, the section of Cathismata there. And as I you know just mentioned, there, there are some composed hymns that accompany the reading of, of the Psalter, and those often are also called Cathisma uh, or Cathismata. Um, and so those would be inspired by the biblical text, but they are compositions. Uh, but it, it, in the Vesper section, we are talking about just a straightforward reading or chanting from the Psalter itself. So how is the, the there is a difference in how the Orthodox Church divides up the book of Psalms versus how the actual book of Psalms sits in the scriptures. Uh, that's right. I mean, we retain all the numbering of the Psalms like you would find in your normal Bibles. Uh, but, you know, from many years ago, uh, for liturgical purposes, the 150 Psalms were split into 20 chunks, um, more or less the same length. I mean, as you know, the Psalms vary in length themselves. So it's very difficult to kind of get an exact, you know, 5% per chunk. But uh, so there are 20 sections of the Psalter. Each of those sections is called a cathisma. And uh, together they are the 20 cathismata. And then further from that, each of those cathisma uh, cathismata is divided into three uh, stases, uh, sometimes called an antiphon as well, which is a bit uh, misleading perhaps. But so you have 20, then divided each of them into three. So 60 divisions altogether uh, of the 150 Psalms. And there are tables you can go and refer to, to exactly how those get divided. If you, if you don't have in your possession you know, a, a book called uh, the Psalter, uh, which is already divided that way, you can go and refer to that and, and, and look up which Psalms are involved in, you know, say, Cathisma 1, Stasis 1. And it turns out it's Psalms 1 through 3. Mm -hmm. So just to, a clarifying uh, definition here, Psalter, like P.S., Psalter, uh, would be the word that we use to reference the compilation into one volume, the book of Psalms divided up in the way that the Orthodox Church uses it in worship. Is that right? Yeah. So if you have an Orthodox published Psalter for liturgical purposes, it will already have those divisions um, established for you. And probably in the back would be tables that would reference how you would read those and distribute them throughout the church here. Because just as a general rule, uh, in every week of the liturgical year, we read the entire Psalter, you know, and we'll be talking about the, the, this idea of continuous reading or, or, or uh, reading in course. Uh, we do that once a week uh, during Lent, twice a week. Um, and then one week of the year, we don't read it at all. And that's Bright Week, the week after Pascha. Uh, to, is the... Is it proper to apply the word Psalter just to the book of Psalms as it sits in your Bible sitting on your desk? I, I mean, it, nobody's going to object, I don't think, but I mean, it, it implies a book bound on its own, which is, of course, a, you know, a whole worth a whole discussion in itself. You know, how, uh, you know, typically a Christian in the 21st century thinks of the Bible as a thing. It's a one volume mm -hmm. thing as though it kind of was published 
year dot, you know, and you had all these different chapters in it. Well, that's not actually how the scriptures function. They are different books. It's a library. Taviglia means, you know, a library of books. And, you know, throughout church history uh, and even, you know, into the old covenant and so forth, for worship, different sections of the, the, the library of books that is the Bible were published, you know, in different ways. You know, you think of way back when the, the, the Jewish Torah, the scroll that was the five books of Moses, uh, the Psalter would be a separate thing and so forth. You know, to, still to this day, we publish the epistles, you know, in the book called the Apostolos that the, the reader were carry around and read from the center of the church when reading uh, from the, the writings of the apostles. We have the gospel book, which is preeminent amongst all those books. It's just the four gospels. And we keep that on the holy table and so forth. So we distribute, as it were, you know, the Bible across different books, um, because they're used in different ways and they actually have a different relative value. And this is kind of shocking maybe to, to some Western Christians who, again, just think of the Bible as one thing and it kind of all has equal weight and you can quote from this or quote from that. And it's kind of, you know, everything is, you know, one plane. Um, but, uh, it's not quite how it works. You know, we, we, we publish and use different parts of the Bible in completely different ways. And that's really highlighted in the way that we do liturgy, right? So the Psalter. Is our preeminent hymn book. It, you know, there'll be a copy at every chanter stand in every Orthodox church. Uh, it's brought to the center of the church for the reading of, of the Cathismata, for example. Uh, they're not generally just read from, from the choir stand, but from the middle of the church. Um, we also do that when we get to the very high solemn moment of the six psalms at, at Matins or Orthros. So yeah, I mean, the, the Psalter really is, it has a pride of place. And that's from the earliest times in the church as, as the, the prayer book, the hymn book of, of the church. And to this day, we, we value it by creating a separate kind of volume of it. And as we say, kind of or, organizing it in, in this very specific way for liturgical use. I think that that is a very important thing you said about how Orthodox throughout the past 2000 years have experienced the scriptures that we often assume that everyone just had a bound codex book sitting on their desk forever, right? And if you went to church, you would just pick up that one document and read it. Whereas for a lot, for certain times in history, people's experience of the scriptures would be communal and they would be uh, done almost in lectionary style. Um, or you know, you would have the one book that has the writings of the prophets or one book that has the... Um, the Psalms and stuff. So that's right. And that, I mean, for good and for bad, I mean, I, I think there's real value in, uh, you know, you know, don't get me wrong. I mean, binding the whole library together and having access to it and knowing, you know, the kind of ordering and, and the whole narrative thrust of the story from Genesis through Revelation. I mean, that's really important. And I, you know, I think getting Bibles out into people's hands is something Orthodox have always been uh, wanting to do. We translate it quickly when we move into new cultures and areas uh, and we put that in people's hands. Unlike, you know, there were certain times in Western history when, you know, forbidding the laity from reading the scriptures was, was the thing to do. And you only ever heard a scripture in church, in the small sections that were used at different services and everything. But there's a balance to be struck there. I mean, you can both read the Bible 
you know, fully at home. I expect every Christian should be reading the Gospels from, you know, chapter one to the to the last chapter. Uh, but then they'll hear, you know, a little excerpt in the Sunday, you know, liturgy, and they'll know where it's placed. But the focus is on, on, on that bit. So it's the same way that, you know, we get the scriptures presented to us in these very important ways. And we'll talk today, I think, about, uh, you know, the, the difference between kind of thematic choice of things to read and then just the kind of meditative continuous reading and, and so forth. Uh, and, and all of that has, has real value uh, for us as, as Christians, because it's, it's really, as we've emphasized before, it's, it's the, these are the texts, the scriptures that we are to immerse our lives into. We're to make sense of our own lives by, you know, connecting to the, the story of God as it unfolds through the scriptures. And so it's, I mean, as we've said many times, that in most of our services are just the scriptures rearranged. And so it's a real opportunity when we go to hear things presented in this, in this highlighted way that, that enables us to, to make sense of who we are and where we're going as a people of God. I want to get back to the biblical context in the, in the yeah, relative to genre, right? Um, one of the things that I think is important to remember is that Psalms are songs, uh, they are poetry. They have a particular style, right? Uh, when when we think of poetry in our 21st century kind of Western North American mind, uh, rhyme often comes to mind, right? This is a tool that poets use to express ideas, right? Um, meter is another um, aspect. Um, Psalms are ancient Jewish poetry, right? And... Um, yeah, could you speak a little bit more about uh, the genre of the Psalms and, and how we should sort of experience these in a context of church? Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing to highlight is what you have just done there, which is that, you know, they are poetry, uh, they are songs, but I mean, specifically, they are meant um, for use in a worship context. I mean, I think from right from the beginning, even though some of them are, you know, tremendously personal in in their their context in their kind of rawness and vulnerability and expression of of sorrow and and strife and suffering and so forth um nevertheless you know and this is clear you know you actually get almost stage directions, you know, uh, included uh, often in the translations that, that we have and so forth, you know, about what kind of musical accompaniment or, you know, uh, what part of the liturgy these are to be, you know, used in, like when walking up towards the temple in Jerusalem, the, the hymns of ascents and, and, and so forth. So they were compiled, you know, regardless of, you know, maybe their original point of origin in, 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 in a, you know, a poet's own and you know, personal um, writing and so forth. I mean, they were very early on compiled into a book that was used in the, in both, you know, temple and then later synagogue uh, worship uh, amongst the people uh, of Israel. And, so they are, they're, they're, they're hymns, you know, and so when we say this is the hymn book of the church, you know, and that's not just a metaphor, you know, this, this, these were literally composed in order to give content to the worship of the people of God, the covenant faithful people of God. And, uh, you know, it's in that context that, that we need to understand, you know, all of them. Now to say the psalm is a genre is, is true, but actually it's a multiplicity of genres. So each one, 
you know, stands within its own, you know, type of psalm. Some of them are remarkable hymns of praise and thanksgiving, of, of giving glory to God for, for everything uh, that he is and, and, and has been towards his people. Some of them are tremendous uh, psalms of repentance, of, of turning from wickedness towards the good. Some of them are tremendous laments, um, you know, for things that have gone wrong. Why do the rich prosper? Why do the, you know, the good uh, suffer? Um, you know, and, and the preponderance of, you know, where the, the kind of, um, you know, emotion or theme, you know, lies, we will vary tremendously. You know, sometimes there's a psalm which has like 50 verses of lament and then just one hint at the very end of deliverance and of, and of thanksgiving. But there's always that term. You know, there's always that move, which is, that's the move of worship, right? So they're tremendously real, you know, from the royal ones to the ones just of the poor, you know, downtrodden person who who sees no hope, you know, until the very end is that glimmer of hope in Zion, in the temple, in, in, in God's presence, you know, there and so forth. So right across that whole gamut, there's almost every aspect of human life that's encompassed, the whole life of the people of God. You know, like we were kind of saying with the, the great litany as a kind of gathering of all of our stories into the story of God. Well, that's what the Psalms do. You know, there's a tremendous letter that was written by St. Athanasius, um, in the fourth century to, uh, to a young, uh, man, Marcellus, and, uh, he commends to him to read and to pray and to sing the Psalms at all times. And he says, you know, every aspect of human life is, is encompassed here. And there's not one thing you're ever going to go through that isn't already described and, and has a remedy almost for, you know, so whatever you're suffering, whatever it is you're going through, there's a Psalm for that, <laughs> you know, and turn to the Psalter and to know the Psalter, to, to steep your life in the Psalter is to actually live in the covenant community of, of God that God has brought into being. And, and, and it really, it's not just, you know, the occasional hymn book. It is actually the very life of the covenant community, which is expressed there. And it's, it's why to this day, you know, we make a big deal out of the Psalms and we should, you know, sadly, you know, a lot of Orthodox will, will skip over these parts. And, you know, we've spoken about Kathismata sections of, of, of Vespers or Matins or whatever, you know, very often that's the part that gets dropped if you drop anything. And that's sad. I mean, going back to St. Athanasius, that's really sad because he says, live your life in this book, in, in these writings, in these hymns, in all of the genres that it encompasses, uh, because this is how you, you are a full and proper member of the covenant community. The podcast you're listening to reflects only the public aspect of our overall project. For those interested, we actively post new episodes on our private podcast. This private space gives us the freedom to debate, discuss, and disagree about open and sometimes controversial theological questions. To get access to these episodes and to join our online community, you can become a patron of the show. We can only continue this work through the generous financial support of our listeners. To become a patron, head over to patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom and select which tier of support you wish. Again, that's patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. And now back to the show. I, in my undergrad, I learned about a concept called parallelism. 
And one of the things we studied actually were uh, modern urban legends, but in the context of what it meant to pass on an oral tradition. And one of the pieces of evidence that historians and scholars use to find out if something that something ancient that is written down, if it had an earlier oral source, is this parallelism, this sort of repetition of um, ideas. Uh, it is a common trope used by bards to this day in, um, in Slavic countries. That's where one of the main studies happened. And Psalms, I think one of the tools that helped me be able to appreciate the Psalms when I'm, when I'm sitting there listening to them be read is to be able to identify that this is um, a tool that's being used in, uh, this is a poetic tool being used by the Psalms. Um, one of the Psalms that I think would be useful to look at for this would be um, uh, in the Masoretic numbering, Psalm 34 in the Septuagint, Psalm 33. 33? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I'll read just uh, the first uh, little verse here. I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Right? So you basically get these two lines that are, that are, that are a couplet, but uh, there's, there's a way that uh, I've, I've heard it described that the Psalms don't rhyme words, they rhyme ideas. That's a beautiful way of expressing it, yeah. Uh, so I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Right. And uh, yeah, that's that's one of the things that's helped me in, in reading the Psalms. Well, I mean, this really is an important um, consideration for the way we're intended to absorb and use the Psalter. Right. And, and all of these beautiful hymns and so forth. It's not you know, we don't read them as simply in a, an historical exercise. Okay. What, what, what is it the people were thinking or doing, you know, way back when, you know, and, and we don't even read them strictly speaking, although there's a way of doing this of, you know, as prophetic, right? So, I mean, a lot of the, the gospels make use of, and, and I mean, our Lord himself makes use in prophetic action of the Psalter. And, and he quotes the Psalter in order to show what he's doing is in fulfillment of all the promises God made to, to Israel. But it's not even strictly speaking, you know, go back and let's find all of the kind of hints of, of Christ, um, you know, in the Psalms. They, they really are set out as a way for us to enter into the fullness of what it is to be uh, members of God's people. And in order to do that, it requires a real interiorization of, you know, the, the themes, the, the, the spirituality, the, the directionality of what the psalmist is writing about. And so it's an invitation. Every phrase is an invitation to connect to some aspect of our life, to enter into it, and to to be formed and transformed and reoriented towards you know what the whole of the Psalter does, which is towards the kingdom, towards the the glory of God. And so to receive that you know the first phrase, "I will bless the Lord at all times." Okay, starting to get an idea, you know, and then it moves into a kind of interior and meditative mode his praise shall continually be in my mouth so it, it deepens strengthens reinforces you know the first thought and so every time that parallelism is used which is you know pretty universally in in the psalms it's it actually reflects this whole 
kind of process of us connecting, entering into immersing ourselves in that and being shaped and formed by the words and themes that, uh, that we hear. And it, to this day, this is why we have these uh, more meditative sections of our liturgy where you're supposed to sit, absorb, receive, be transformed. Um, you can talk about, you know, where that came from in, in, in church history and everything in the way that that was practiced in, you know, in early monasticism and, and so forth. But it still retains that character in our services of, you know, of invitation and transformation. I have a bit of a gripe with certain Orthodox service books in that when they put psalms into text and put them into the book for you to read through as the time comes, they format them as like a block paragraph sometimes, hmm. just as if it's prose narrative. And I really think that the formatting of the words on the page is important, especially for someone who is responsible for reading them out loud for the community, to be able to identify those poetic couplets and to be able to um, emphasize certain words. And I think that can sometimes be lost in the block form. I'm not sure if that bothers you as much as it bothers me. Oh, I know what you're saying. And you know, you might say, well, that doesn't really matter to the majority of people there because they don't even have the text in front of them. They are you know, doing what I just said, which is like sitting, absorbing, being invited and, and trying to meditate on it. But believe me, somebody who's reading a block prose paragraph of a psalm is going to read that in a different way, uh, you know, from somebody who's actually reading it as poetry. And consequently, the person who's listening, who doesn't have the text in front of them still is impacted by, you know, that, that actual formatting for, for sure. You know, we need to make it as, as easy as possible for that to be proclaimed uh, in a way that, that is meaningful and, and truly, you know, invitational and, and, and meditating, as, as we just said, uh, you know, and so even better, you know, set them off in, in such a way that those uh, parallels and, uh, you know, joining of themes and so forth is, is really clear. And, and where there's even moves within Psalms, you know, as I say, if you move from lament to an expression of hope, you know, put a paragraph break, you know, and space there so that there's a, a sense of, of movement and dynamism in the, in the actual reading. Um, you know, obviously the more we become familiar with these Psalms, we read, we read them over and over again. You can anticipate those moments, but you know, the, the formatting of the very book, the Psalter itself should make it easy for the person proclaiming these to, to make it you know, to express the whole spirit of, of what's going on, the narrative thrust, the, you know, the directionality, all of the Psalms have a shape, you know, and it's very often, you know, somewhere along that great U shape that every story, you know, uh, expresses. You start, you know, uh, at a reasonably high point. It's a kind of naive point, you know, of, oh, everything's wonderful. Uh, then there's some realization that things are not so wonderful. There's that period of strife or struggle of suffering. Um, but, but that last part of the you, which is the great, you know, the you um, catastrophe is what J.R.R. Tolkien called it. That that kind of pulling of of joy, of of hope, of of glory out of the midst of suffering, and, and that ultimately is where all the psalms will take us. So somewhere along that U shape, you know, the the psalm will kind of focus, and that needs to be clear in the narrative proclamation, uh, even in this kind of more meditative mode of the cathismata. 
Uh, yeah, I think that U-shape is another uh, tool for us to know when we are sitting and listening to these psalms. Um, being able to identify the movement of the psalm is very helpful for us to be able to take in its meaning. And uh, I, I'm wondering if we could even speak a bit more to, to that concept of th that you, that um, uh, the beginning sort of in that naive spot, the descent into uh, struggle, and then the sort of fulfillment after that. Um, yeah, could, could you say a bit more about that right now? Yeah, I mean, it has been talked about by, you know, all kinds of... Uh, you know, narrative uh, or literary, you know, critics of, you know, any kind of, of literature, but I mean, specifically uh, of the scriptures, one of the uh, great uh, narrative literary critics of the 20th century, Northrop Frye, you know, famously described this in, in his books on, on the Bible, but that, I mean, ultimately every story is kind of you know, somewhere along the, this pattern that, you know, you start, um, you start the journey. You start the the the, the narrative, the story of you know of, of anyone you know in a in a position of kind of relative um, wholeness. Uh, you know, it's the story of of creation, as it were, of you know everything being set up and ordered and so forth. But you know, very quickly things can go awry, you know, so there is a kind of, there's some of the Psalms will actually try to stay in that, I call it naive. It's maybe not the the, the best uh, description of it, but it's that, um, it's a, it's a kind of primitive uh, joy. And uh, it's an understanding that, you know, God is in his heaven and everything is ordered. Everything is fine. In some ways, that opening Psalm that we talked about, Psalm 103 of, of Vespers has elements of that, right? It's, it's that beautiful expression that God has set everything out. Everything is ordered. Everything is, is, is watered by the springs, you know, that come from above, that come from below and everything. And of course, that's patently not true. You know, these are people who have experienced drought and, you know, have gone through, through the wilderness, through the desert and so forth. So to talk about springs that are always present and always providing, you know, produce and everything as a, as a slightly naive character to it. It's, 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 it's really forcefully trying to, to tell, to tell a story of that, which really isn't yet. And maybe in some ways it's actually ultimately a kind of eschatological, you know, this is what, what it's supposed to be like. Right. But then there's that move towards recognition of reality as it is, you know, things are not totally ordered things are quite disordered and there's oh god my god why have you forsaken well me? yeah i mean it gets that's the kind of depth of it for sure and but it means everything from you know the strife between human beings uh the disorder in in nature the the lack of of, of food or of water or you know all of the things the stuff of life you know is missing warfare you know continues and and often it's accompanied with uh yeah thought things were under your control, God, um, but somehow or another, something's gone wrong. Well, you know, and, and I don't quite understand it, right? So there's, there's the lament portion of saying, you know, I, I'm re total recognition of, of everything that can go wrong has gone wrong, but um, 
you know, what, where is God in all of this? You know, I thought, you know, thinking back to that kind of more naive stage or primitive stage, I thought God was on his throne in heaven. I thought he had this, you know, I thought he was controlling and ordering all things. I thought he was good. I thought he cared, you know, so you, you very quickly move into a mode of not doubt because, um, uh, you know, certainly not doubt in a, in a kind of God's non-existence because it's all framed within a, a relationship. It, it's framed within a freedom of speaking about this and of, and of questioning God, of pushing God to say, how come this is like this when, you know, you're meant to be the one who's caring for us? And particularly when the poor ones, the weak ones, the vulnerable ones, the marginalized are suffering and it's the wicked that are prospering. You know, this really is, is a, is a kind of deep vein of of uh, of questioning of of real challenge to God and so at those deep moments you know God why have you forsaken me how is that um but out of that comes you know new insight uh you know it's not always an insight that comes from oh look God has come and rescued me already uh or maybe i i got it wrong and and the, the you know there really isn't suffering after all i mean the the reality of the suffering stays with you uh death and disease and 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 poverty and warfare are all still a reality that are are considered but out of that comes an expression of hope of transformation of of looking forward to an ultimate deliverance of knowing that things may temporarily be like this this is a you know but it's a transitory period that finally God will deliver us from all that afflicts us. And those people that think, you know, they have it good, uh, who are in power, who are using their power and, 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 and wealth and, and so forth to oppress others, those people will ultimately be pulled down, you know, from their, the, from their high seats and, and they will be shown to be actually the ones who ultimately um, are cast out. And so there's this, uh, this final move. And that's the, the, the prophetic move that, that actually gives rise to the whole content of, of our Lord's ministry, of his earthly life, of his passion, death, and resurrection. I mean, he puts the Psalms on his own mouth as he goes through, through that. And including, you know, that one you famously quoted, you know, on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But to quote the rest of that Psalm is to move to a position of ultimate deliverance, right? He's not despairing. He's recapitulating and living the, the life of, of the psalmist and of the, the whole Psalter in the invocation of, of that verse. And so this, this U-shaped pattern is really quite fundamental, you know, and where you finally arrive at is not just, it's not a circle, it's a U, right? It's it, to say it's a circle would be to kind of go back to a kind of naive position of, you know, denying reality somehow or of, or of ignoring real suffering. And that's not what we do. We move to a new position, um, a new orientation towards an ultimate end where in fact, death and suffering and sin and division and all of that has been, has been dealt with, you know, it, it, but it's been faced. It's been confronted. It's been, uh, overcome, not just simply naively ignored, right? Which would be what going back to the starting point would have looked like. So that U, U shape is fundamental to you know, almost every story in the Bible. It is fundamental to almost every psalm. And of course, it is that descent to death and resurrection that our Lord himself embodies and enacts and that we are asked to follow. 
right? That, that's that's the, the ultimate takeaway here is that in our baptism, which is symbolic of our entire Christian life, we are asked to bury ourselves in the death of Christ and to rise again with him. So it's a U-shaped pattern. We do it you know, quite literally, you know, and, and embodiedly in, in our baptismal font, but that is to be our whole life, that we, we follow that, that pattern of descent and ascent, but precisely to confront and overcome sin and darkness and death and suffering like all of the Psalms point to, like our Lord does in his salvific life, death and resurrection. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of Enacting the Kingdom. For bonus episodes and content, or if you'd simply like to see this show continue, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com slash enacting the kingdom. See you next time.